Okay, good, good evening and welcome to everyone to uh, London School of Economics with a very special lecture this evening from our guest, Jaron Lanier. Jaron's uh, got a very busy schedule at the moment as he has a new book out called You Are Not a Gadget, uh, which reminds me actually if you do have a gadget in your pocket, if you could put it oh, onto yeah, stun an excellent point or mute. To stun, yes. That would probably be quite useful. I think they're already set to stun, but uh, yeah. Uh, Briefly, Jaron's going to do most of the talking this evening for about, maybe up to about an hour. Then there'll be opportunity for Q&A with yourselves. And then at the end, at about 8 o'clock, uh, Jaron will be doing a book signing outside in the foyer for those of you who'd like to get hold of the aforementioned You Are Not a Gadget book. I'm not sure Jaron particularly needs any introduction. Uh, I'm sure most of you who here are already familiar with his very interesting range of skills and talents ranging from being a highly talented musician, a computer scientist, a philosopher and of course the inventor of virtual reality and I think this is a great uh, and somewhat rare opportunity to hear in person his thoughts on how we can prevent ourselves all becoming a gadget. <laughs> I'll hand over to Charles. Good, good, thank you so much. Um, should I, uh, here, I'll bring this closer. So I want to start by talking about the emotional role of ideas in our lives. I've had experiences repeatedly in my life of becoming not just attached to ideas, but finding within ideas a source of my identity, my solace, my joy, my faith, my connections with others. Uh, and the question comes up, if there's an idea that means a great deal to you, that's more than an idea, what do you do if you find the idea to be wrong? What happens to you? How do you handle that? That is the most challenging aspect of ideas, <clears throat> that they can mean to us more than their truth or falsity, and that in those cases they present a dilemma. So this is the, the, the dark side of ideas, if you like. Even the ideas we love can sometimes turn out to be wrong. Not all ideas even have the capacity to be right or wrong, but some do. So the story I'm going to tell you tonight is about my own encounter with some ideas that I contributed to, that I helped create, that I now find based on empirical observation, on evidence, to be not entirely right. I don't think they're entirely wrong either. And about the emotional process of accepting that ideas might have to change sometimes, even if one really doesn't want them to, and the quest to find new ideas. So uh, as you might be aware, the, I the particular ideas I'm, I'm going to talk about relate to a certain sort of uh, idealism around digital stuff. And it's, I want to emphasize that I am still very much a digital idealist. I'm still absolutely as wild-eyed and optimistic as I ever was. However, I am uh, determined to honestly accept negative results to our experiments and to incorporate them into my thought. And this can create some tension, some difficulty, both within my head and between my head and my friends' heads. Uh, my, my, so um, 
Let us uh, imagine the world as it was 30 years ago. And I was, as you might imagine, a sort of an eccentric younger version of who I am today <laughs> with approximately the same hair. And I fell in with a crowd of other young technical people, almost all men, and that'll actually turn out to be important in the story in a surprising way. And we realized, as did some of, our, some of the older generations in our field, that the way computers are designed would have a profound, profound influence on society and the experience of everyday life. And that it had fallen into our laps to have, in a way, an unfair, undue amount of influence. Because at that time, the computer world was rather small. It's not like it is today with millions upon millions of people interested in making little apps and things. It was a more rarefied little seed of the world we see today. And so the question is, if you find yourself in that situation where undue influence falls into your lap, what do you do? Well, of course, you have ideas. And some of the ideas, I think, were extraordinarily good, and I find them to be ever truer and ever more confirmed as time goes on, and of course some not. An example of an idea that, for me, has held more and more true is a sort of an optimism about the roles that people can and will take on in life when given a chance. There had been, during this period of about 30 years ago, a widespread uh, pessimism about human nature. Uh, it held that most people would choose to be couch potatoes most of the time, to be rather passive, to be receptacles for entertainment. Uh, this was a sort of a future portrayed in science fiction quite commonly. Uh, in this view, there was only a tiny minority of people who were sort of the uber creatives, the um, the source points for what the others would just uh, consume. If you really believed this about people, it suggested one sort of future. Um, you would certainly prefer the uh, rights of the majority over the minority, so you would want to make sure that those who wish to simply be passive and consume would be able to do so easily and reliably and smoothly, <laughs> and uh, maybe in vats or something. They would, they, you know, they'd all be sort of uh, suspended in some sort of ge gelatin and, and sustained um, while, while enjoying video games for eternity or something like that. Um, the, the other point of view was that people on the whole are ready to be active, are creative, that each person has a unique perspective that's not only worth telling, but that most people, given a chance and maybe a touch of encouragement, will have the drive and the competency to bring out what's inside their brains and that it'll be of value to others. Now, if you believe that a majority of people actually have this quality, it's an extraordinary act of optimism. And I very firmly believe that. Most did not. Uh, in fact, um, th th that kind of optimism was ridiculed like crazy, and very frequently. It was very hip to ridicule it. Because, of course, we, the technical elite and the, the, education, the educated elite in general, look down upon the lumpen, you know, and, and, and so, uh, it was very flattering to us to believe that no one else could do anything but us. Well, the 90s came around and finally it clicked that um, 
normal that uh, normal people could get online, which hadn't really clicked before. And the little chink that finally put it together was Tim Berners-Lee HTML. So thank thank you to the UK for providing <laughs> the fellow who finally um, put the, the little the, the missing chink in place. And then what happened in the in the 90s was this extraordinary outpouring of creativity and constructiveness from millions upon millions of people. There were millions of people making web pages, uh, creating content online, creating social experiments, creating lessons, um, all sorts of things. And the first decade of the web took place without much of a profit motive, without, well, the first seven years of the web, let's say, without uh, any particular charismatic figures driving it without fear, without a desire for an afterlife or any other religious gambits, without um, advertising, without any of the traditional motivational schemes. It simply happened because people enjoyed it and it was a good idea. And this was something of just fabulous. I think one of the most important empirical results of any experiment in centuries. We learned a new thing about humans. We learned a new, a new verified truth about human nature that uh, had, had only been a speculation before. And I can't imagine a greater gift from a piece of technology beyond our survival, of course, which is the main thing we hope for from it. <laughs> but uh, this was something absolutely astonishing. Um, speaking very roughly, um, if we could imagine a ratio between creativity and passivity in humankind in general, that ought to tell us in the long term what sort of society humans will create for ourselves as we experiment with different models and as technology gets better and better so that it's more our desires and our abilities that determine how we organize our affairs. And I am a technological optimist. I think that that is the, that will happen, in a, you know, down a rocky, rocky road, but eventually technology will give us, uh, for better or for worse, more and more responsibility for our own fates uh, and more ability to create the world uh, that we might want. So if the ratio favors passivity, we will expect to have a stultifying world, uh, maybe the kind of world that Ian Forster uh, conveys in the story The Machine Stops. Has anyone not read that? Have you all read it? Do you know about it? Go read it immediately at the conclusion of this lecture. If anybody wants to run out and read it right now, I'll, I'll forgive you. It's a, a short story uh, written over a century ago by Ian Forster, the fellow who wrote Room with a View and so forth. Uh, it's the most predictive and accurate description of the internet as we know it today that's been written, and it's uh, dystopian and very interesting. Um, the Machine Stops by E.M. Forster. Um, <coughs> so uh, I think somebody's dialing it up on their iPhone right now. I see over there in the third row. It's, it's hard to read on a little screen. You can wait. but. <laughs> um, until the, I, I know, God, it's going to be terrible when there are iPads in the classroom. Everybody's going to be, I can see that now. Um, so, uh, so there was this enormous confirmation of uh, the other alternative, which is that people are more creative than passive. Uh, so this is really interesting. It's not hard to imagine what a society ought to be like in which most of the people are passive, because most of the people don't really have to do anything. They're effectively in their vats. Or in, in the Forster story, they're in cubicles, um, Twitter, you know, tweeting and using the Wikipedia and whatnot. Um, if we imagine a world in which people really are creative and constructive, what does that world look like? What does it look like to have a world where the majority of people are creative professionals? Is that any? Can we imagine an economy in a context of technological abundance, in which there 
are a majority of people who are self-actualized, to use one term, uh, who are who are uh, really functioning at a, as a creative professional? Is such a world imaginable? Can it? Is there enough room for all those creative people, or would that just be some sort of hell? You know, <laughs> um, so that I think that's one of the most huge questions looming in the future of our, our race, our, our our curious little human experiment here on this little remote planet of ours. Uh, so. Uh, since I was one of a minority of people who held this optimism about humans, uh, I, I joined in with a band of people who shared that and we tried to imagine a future in which uh, most people would be creative and most people would be active. Um, the person who really originated that stream of thinking uh, is named Ted Nelson. He's still with us. Ted is the person who first imagined the World Wide Web and how it could be built and his first description of it dates from 1960. Uh, so this, there's a there's a long prehistory here. Uh, his name for it was hypertext, and in Tim Berners-Lee's um, HTML, the HT is hypertext, a direct reference to Ted's work, which uh, Tim conceived himself as furthering. So when Ted considered it, he also thought most people would be creative, and so what he imagined was a world with a universal system of micropayments, a single universal system, not a bunch of little paywalls and a bunch of little uh, walled gardens, but a single genuinely universal system in which anybody could, if they chose, ask to be paid for access to bits that they put up and, could, and they could set the price they wanted. Um, it wouldn't preclude people from giving things away for some business plan, giving some stuff away, charging for other stuff, any of those things, but they would have the option to charge. There would be only a single logical copy of each thing Meaning, um, as with YouTube or the iTunes store or something like that, there's only one copy effectively from your point of view, even though as a technical matter there might be other copies around to make it run efficiently and to have a backup and so on. So he imagined this world. He called it Xanadu, <laughs> which indicates part of the reason it never happened. Um, unfortunately, uh, Ted, was very, Ted was and is very much um, a, uh, a committed hippie. Um, so countercultural that anything like good management or finishing code would be anathema to, to him. And, and so <laughs> I see people nodding. There, every once in a while in lecture, somebody who worked on the old Xanadu team shows up. It's like, oh, God, it's so true. So uh, if, you, if you know the movie Spinal Tap and think about software engineers instead of musicians, you have a picture of what this was like. Uh, <laughs> and it was just completely loony. So it, it just never got done, and it waited for, for Tim to come along. And uh, Tim did something much more minimalist that didn't include the economic model, and it spread very quickly for that reason. But um, had we been able to seize the earlier moment, we could have had the economic model as well. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about this, because I believe that what we have with Ted Nelson is a clear example of the principle of first thought, best thought, that, that sometimes when somebody comes along and surveys a problem for the very first time, they actually see it more clearly than those who come later because there's no baggage. And in this case, I think his initial vision was vastly more optimistic, ambitious, and just genuinely superior on many levels to what's come later. Not in every detail. Ted had a, um, way too much complexity on how things would be addressed. Uh, so instead of URLs, he had this insane, potentially infinitely long system of identifying every little letter's position. In the, it was just insane. But let's leave that aside. The, the economic principle was very clear. So let us suppose we had a world in which there's only one copy of each file, so you no longer copy them. 
and you, um, <coughs> each file is owned by a person or by the public if it's designated so. If it's owned by a person, the person controls how much it costs to see it. And what does that world look like? Um, for a lot of people who have grown up in the later ideology that I'll get to in a moment, the open culture ideology, that sounds horrible. They would say, if you have to pay for information, won't that cause you to be excluded from it sometimes and wouldn't that be awful? Um, and in it, it might seem that way, uh, but sometimes things are not as they seem. Uh, a world of affordable access might be a world of vastly more uh, creative access and vastly <coughs> more happy creators um, that would still have just as much access and just as much democracy as a world of absolutely free access. Um, now, let me go over some of the arguments in favor of a universal pay system just to give you a sense of why I, I believe it's our ultimate destination and that somehow we will, over a long and rocky road, find our, ways, our way from where we are back to Ted's original idea, even if it takes quite a, quite a long number of years. Um, one thing that's good about it is uh, it's green. Uh, the internet as it is today is one of the most wasteful technolog technological designs in play. Uh, we, we like to think about the internet as something entirely ethereal and free. So when you send an email to somebody, it's free. When you download a movie from some file sharing site or some peer-to-peer -peer site, it's free. Of course it's not free. The infrastructure of the, of the internet is one of the giant industrial machines on the planet. It's a, it's a huge distributed resource. Um, data centers are massive, sometimes city-like uh, structures. They have a huge carbon footprint. They use uh, an increasingly large amount of electricity and the, the creation of the silicon parts for them uh, involves concentrations of toxic materials and mining rare things from exploited people in various corners of the world and all, all the things associated with big heavy industry. The, in the internet is heavy industry. Now, just a single peer-to-peer -peer file sharing uh, protocol, uh, BitTorrent, apparently is responsible for more than half the bandwidth on the internet, which means that half this thing is just one protocol for illegally downloading movies. Uh, so this, this notion of having an infinite number of copies of everything so that everything can be absolutely free uh, creates a profound degree of waste. Uh, there's another form of waste in it as well. And, and the reason I'm talking about this is because we're going to get in a moment to the cost of doing the system that, that Ted proposed of micropayments because it's sometimes argued, oh, that would be too expensive. But if you look at the waste and what we're doing right now, it becomes clear that it actually would be less expensive. Um, Another problem is that somehow the people who create things do have to um, get paid because we live in a capitalist society in which people have to pay for rent and food and so forth. So um, if you give away everything from your brain, there has to be some other um, compensation. And of course, the ideology of open culture proposes a variety of ways that this can work out. Uh, I made up a lot of this rhetoric. I'm about, you, should, you should know if you're an open culture ideologue and you come at me with, oh, but, you know, uh, it'll work out for this reason or that reason. I might, you might be giving my own old argument back to me, so just be aware of that. I was one of the originators of this stuff that I'm rejecting now. But at any rate, um, if, um, if you, uh, um, if you wish to be paid within a file copying world, 
one of the only methods, there, there are a few, but the, the primary one is to have some proprietary hardware delivery so that you can have a walled garden. And some of the famous ones are the iPhone, the Kindle, um, Xbox, or PlayStation, or Wii, um, or for that matter, if you want to extend the concept, the movie theater, um, or the car radio even. Uh, some, some kind of specialized piece of hardware so that the channel is not part of the open world. Well, what's wrong with that? Um, once again, waste. If there were a universal system so that people could be paid through any device, we wouldn't need to, to have all of these custom devices made all the time. Now, for the moment, I think it's fine to be experimenting with devices because this is a moment where we're trying to get it right. I doubt the iPad will be right in the first generation. I think there'll be some churn for the next little while. But to permanently have a world where people have to constantly create new consumable hardware just in order to get paid for things that are intangible is just profoundly wasteful. Do you see that point? And that's unfortunately a side effect of the open culture idea. So between the needless replication of files on a giant global basis and the needless creation of extra gadgets that aren't needed, uh, this open thing is profoundly wasteful and profoundly anti-green. Now let's look at the other side of what would the costs would be of doing a world of uh, paid culture. Um, and I'm going, to approach the, I'm going to approach this comparison in a number of ways. Right now I'm just doing this very raw um, cost question, but I'm going to get into some other issues that are really more to do with dignity and, and uh, spirituality and just achievement and creativity as well. Because I think that this, this argument works on quite a number of levels. So uh, one of the reasons that micropayments are uncommon is because they've been ridiculed by cra like crazy by open culture ideologues who inherited some of our old rhetoric, um, like uh, Clay Shirky is one example. And so the main argument against them is, oh, they're so expensive. Um, if, you have, uh, if you have to charge a penny to sell a half penny's worth of bits or access to them, then obviously you're losing money every time. And it does cost money to manage micropayments. You have to have a whole infrastructure for it. And so the answer to that is that uh, if it's walled gardens, if it's the iPhone store versus the Kindle store, then that's absolutely correct. And a lot of the money that you pay for something on those stores is just going to the maintenance of the payment system itself. Uh, the problem with that, though, and, and, and that means that um, there's a minimum cost. I, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit into economics here since it is an economics school, but um, I, not too much, since fortunately I am not an economist myself. Um, but. Uh, uh, there is a little bit of cost, and it's true, if, if micropayments must be managed by competing walled gardens, the costs are prohibitive. And um, furthermore, it's not just the cost to the provider, but it's the cost to the user in convenience, because it means that every single time you transition from one walled garden to another, from the Kindle to the iPhone, you have to maintain a different uh, online password, financial account, and you have to maintain those and change them over time because that's how such things are. The, the reasonable overhead I think that we can expect from a person is maybe managing eight to ten of these identities, and even that is really quite a burden, but certainly not a million of them. And so what it means is it creates a two-tiered society in which there's, uh, you, to get paid, you, you, can, you can talk your way into the, I, the iTunes store or something, and you have to get through whatever censorship or policies Apple might impose, which people complain about all the time. Um, and, that, and that means that there'll be a studio system where there'll be a small number of places that control access. Um, 
and that's the only way to make the personal overhead for users acceptable. Now compare that to a universal system. It will still cost money to manage micropayments just as it costs money to have uh, paper money. Some of the money in our taxes goes just to printing the paper money, to having police to try to keep the fraud down to a dull roar, to just storing the money because it's physical. Um, we don't think of those costs in a transaction because they're born equally and they don't show up on the books of competitors. And so if we think of the micropayment system as just part of the overhead of society, kind of like the sewers or something, but not part of the cost of an individual competitor versus another, then uh, it becomes something that doesn't have an influence on the marketplace, but instead just on the level of taxation. Uh, I have just made an argument that in terms of fundamental costs, the overall internet can be magnitude smaller if it's managed rationally through a one copy of each thing scheme, which is how it should be run. Um, you would never run an operating system in which you made arbitrary number of copies of every file. It would just be absurd. So if we do that with the internet, with the cloud as a whole, the cost savings should, I, should I believe, outweigh the cost of micropayments. Is this a, so I'm, 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 getting I'm taking a slightly technical approach because of the name of the school. If, if this seems too tedious or boring, I guess you'll have to suffer. I'll, I'll get to some of the, the juicier stuff as well. Now let's consider a second point of comparison between the open culture model and some sort of a, uh, a, pay, a universal micro, micropayments uh, system along the lines of Xanadu. Uh, there's a very difficult confrontation between these, uh, and I say difficult because these are all my friends and it's not necessarily always emotionally easy for me to take a contrary position in my community, but there's, um, uh, there's a very strong uh, ideology that says information sharing is always good at every moment in every case and the more information flows around the better everything will be the more people that are involved the better it will be and openness um, without differentiation is always always better and I used to believe that and I came to understand that it was actually wrong that the truth was more subtle than that and it's very similar to the distinction between anarchy and democracy it might seem to a great many young idealists that anarchy should be the ideal way to organize human affairs because after all people should be free, people should be trusted and if people are just allowed to sort out their affairs without some power structure everything should be just fine. And of course when you actually experiment with that everything is not just fine. And I want to go into a couple of reasons why this is so and why certain structures, certain limitations to absolute openness actually increase uh, effective openness or the, 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 the quality of the result for everybody and the comfort for everybody, um, although it has to be done very well. So on one level, I want to talk about the, um, the power of encapsulation. So uh, one way to approach this topic is with a metaphor to the history of biology on Earth. If we go back far enough, uh, and this means some billions of years, uh, life on Earth didn't involve cell walls. There were genes before there were cells. And what there was was a worldwide gloop, a worldwide mush, a sort of a slime over things. <laughs> and genes just kind of mixed into different sort of uh, patches of slime. And then at some point, uh, collections of genes started to organize themselves in an encapsulated form where there was a wall around them. And the advent of that membrane that separated one batch of genes from another batch of genes was profound because as soon as you have a cell, then um, 
if, if I can be forgiven for anthropomorphizing evolution for a second, I always think of her as this sort of beautiful, beautiful goddess creature or something. So what the cell wall lets evolution do is it lets her ask more complicated questions and perform more considered and extended experiments. Instead of just saying, well, this gene mixes with that one, that one mixes with that one, that one mixes with that one. What about this particular combination of a thousand genes over a sustained period of time, what happens? So you have this much more structured, detailed, complex, and subtle question, and the results in the case of evolution, unfortunately, are gathered in a very sad way, as results often are, in that um, survival uh, of the fittest su suggests that <laughs> the negative, uh, all, the shape of you, the shape of your nose, a lot about how you emotionally feel and what your day feels like to you is the negative space left over from all of your would-be ancestors who were killed before they could reproduce, often eaten, and sometimes just killed in cruelty or starving. I mean, it's a, it's a very horrible thing that happened in order to create us. We're just the leftovers of carnage, basically. That's, that's how evolution works. But, um, so she's, she's sort of a cruel goddess, a bit of a bitch, perhaps. Um, and, um, I guess that might explain part of her appeal uh, in some twisted way. Um, at any rate, uh, that's what she did. And, and uh, once you had cell walls, then complexity flourished. And you suddenly had these incredible outpourings of variety and structure. And you started to have things with bodies, multicellular creatures came about, and so forth. And here we are. So. The thing about the cell wall is that it's an impediment to absolute open sharing all the time, and some degree of, of uh, punctuated temporary impediment is necessary in order to gain any complexity, subtlety, or substantiality in uh, experimenting with reality. If everything's open all the time, then you're always back to the starting gate and you end up as a giant mush. So this principle of uh, encapsulation doesn't suggest a lack of openness. It suggests a punctuated lack of openness. And I, I'm borrowing that term from Stephen Jay Gould, who a, was a dear friend who I miss, uh, who talked about punctuated equilibrium showing up in, in, uh, in, in evolutionary processes. And, and it's exactly for this reason, that it takes a long time for a question to be delivered, often cruelly, but definitively by evolution. Now, um, let me give you some other examples of encapsulation. Um, when scientists are working together in a team, they often will hold their cards close to the vest and not show their results or their data to others. Part of it is just good old sportsmanship where they want to be able to spring impressive results on their colleagues at some conference. But also part of it is they just need time to get their, their, their ducks in line, to, to get their thoughts in order. Um, they need a period of consideration, a period of introspection, but publish they must. So the lack of openness is only periodic. If it didn't exist, the overall field of science would always be back at the starting gate and there would be less in scientific careers and less in scientific ambitions and simpler scientific questions. So that, that periodic local closure in order to create this ability to introspect and to improve is essential. Uh, there are many, many other examples, but there's none more important than the idea of the individual human. Each of us is uh, like this, that ancient first cell that first got a membrane um, encapsulated. And if we give up the benefits of encapsulation, if we give up the notion of inner life, introspection, and so forth, we lessen ourselves. And some of the designs that result from the sort of craze 
for extreme open culture or extremist open culture inevitably uh, ask us to lose the benefits of our own encapsulation. There are many, many examples I can give of this, but uh, one I'll mention is that Google is uh, touting a alternative to email that they hope to promote called Google Wave. I would imagine there might be people who are early users of it now because it's considered this uh, high status thing to be a beta tester of it. And um, anybody here a Wave tester? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, when you use Google Wave, um, one of the problems I see is that you're, uh, you're encouraged to use it in a mode where uh, people can retype what each other have written. You can watch other people as their characters, individual characters are going down. You don't even give them a chance to finish their thought before they press return. You can turn those things off, but it's not the standard way of using it. And it's a giant ritual of erasing the boundaries between people, of de-encapsulating de people to create the illusion that the people are turning into this one wave. Um, I, I'm going to get into why that design happens and where the ideology comes from in a little bit. But I want to point out that uh, it's only one of many, many examples in which there are little ritualistic attacks on the very notion of personal encapsulation. And I think that ultimately that not only does economic damage, but it does uh, spiritual and intellectual damage as well. Uh, this has been a long-running debate. Uh, there, uh, one uh, axis of debate has to do with the wisdom of crowds and when it works. Uh, there's a very real effect, sometimes known as the wisdom of crowds, uh, the first lecture in a business school curriculum is often uh, ha often involves having the students uh, uh, guess the number of beans in a jar of jelly beans or uh, guess the weight of an ox if they happen to have an ox handy, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> maybe maybe you wouldn't in the middle of London. Um, but um, the, uh, uh, the the effect works and. Uh, on the other hand, there are cases where you ask a group of people to collaborate on something and you get what's der derisively called uh, design by committee, which doesn't work. So what's the difference? There have been quite a variety of approaches to trying to define the difference. Um, and I've been in dialogue with a number of people who study the difference. And I think it merits much more study. But for the moment, I'll just tell you one point of divide between when it works and when it doesn't work. And it's, it's very simply the nature of the output. If the output of what the crowd is supposed to do is a single number, then it can work. And, and, and the number has to be something that's a point on a distribution. Um, so uh, setting a price in a marketplace is done well by a crowd. And the reasons for that, I think it's because many people in the crowd have part of the answer. They're, they're somewhat connected to reality, so they center around it. And, and that, that does make some sense. Uh, if the crowd is asked to do anything synthetic or constructive, where they're building something more complicated than a simple, single numerical output, then you get design by committee. You get an averaging effect. You get dullness. And that does not work. And I think that that's been seen very consistently. I can give you some examples of it. Um, but anyway, I think that's where the divide is. Now, the, um, there's been a tremendous emotional, ideological attachment to the notion that more and more things should be done by crowd. It's, it's been a huge wave. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about what I think the emotional underpinnings are of this uh, desire for personal erasure, to lose one's membrane and to become part of a mush. Uh, there, there are many parts to it. Part of it is very simple. Um, 
politics in, in, within a family. It's, uh, you're, you're young, uh, you, you, uh, are, you've just become an adult, and you look at older adults like your parents, and they often have uh, more power, more influence, more money, and you think, wouldn't it be more fair if everyone was just equal? It's so frustrating. You look at the world, and you're, you're suddenly, um, uh, you often find yourself just starting out in a world where many other people have achieved, and it seems very frustrating and difficult. I mean, I, I remember this myself, which is why I say it. And so it's natural to imagine, wouldn't it be nicer if everything was just more flat, more fair? Uh, and, and I think thus you have the sort of tendency for younger people to be a little bit more friendly to um, neo-Marxist or, or sort of flattening schemes. So that's part of it. That's a very simple reason. But what we're dealing here with here is something far deeper and far, far more profound. Um, so uh, I'm going to approach this as I do in the book by telling the story of Alan Turing's death which I, I presume many of you are aware of because finally uh, in the last year the UK government issued a long, long overdue apology for what happened. So um, this might be too familiar to you, so I forgive you if I bore you with the story. Um, does it, well, actually, I'll just, does anybody not know how Alan Turing died or who he was? Okay, so quite a few of you. Uh, huh. I noticed some people were both wave testers and also don't know this story. Um, <laughs> If you're using things like WAVE, you should know the story. You should really have the context of what you're doing because it's, it's, it's really crucial. Um, otherwise, you're just a tool of faraway marketers who are siphoning money out of here into my own pocket, basically, because I'm part of the Silicon Valley elite. So thank you for the money, but you still should be more in charge of yourself and know what you're doing. Um, so uh, Alan Turing was one of the greatest war heroes in history, he, but he was a nerd. Uh, he was the first cracker. He was the first person to use a digital computer to break a secret code. During World War II, uh, he used computers to break a Nazi secret code that was called Enigma that Nazi mathematicians thought was unbreakable. And have, being able to read Nazi communiques gave the UK an edge in World War II that some historians have claimed might have been crucial to uh, survive the survival of the nation. Uh, it's, uh, it's very hard to think about this, but had Turing not succeeded in cracking that code, we might live in a very different world today, and one that would be much worse. Um, so here you have this extraordinary hero, and this extra who's, a, who's exhibited the very highest degree of intellectual creativity and mathematical achievement. Uh, he also co-invented the mathematics at the core of computation as we understand it today, and, and many other things. Um, there was one problem, he was gay, and at the time it was illegal to be gay in Britain. So at that time, we didn't yet have digital computation to use as a metaphor with which to misunderstand ourselves, so we were stuck with the steam engine as the metaphor to misunderstand ourselves. And in steam engine terms, which are neo-Freudian, um, if somebody's gay, it must mean that there was some sort of gay pressure building up. And if there was some sort of counter pressure, it might balance the overall organism so that one would become straight again. And based on that profoundly twisted logic, Turing was forcibly given a, a regimen of uh, massive uh, female hormones. Um, and this should serve as a cautionary tale that when we, when we think of that computers tell us much about our nature, we might be performing just as uh, intelligently as the people who did this were performing. So Turing developed breasts. He became, uh, 
he lost the body he knew and became terribly depressed. And he committed suicide in a ritualistic manner where he uh, replayed the story of Eve. He laced a apple with cyanide in his lab and died in front of his computers. Uh, and this, so there's this, this, this extraordinary story. Now, just before Turing's death, in just the weeks before it, he put forward into the world uh, a fundamentally new idea about how one could cope with the human condition. And this doesn't happen very often. So this is <coughs> a sign of an extraordinarily uh, resourceful and brilliant person. Um, this idea is known as the Turing test. He never even really got a chance to properly publish it. And there are hints in his own writings that his take on it would have been very different than the way it's usually been taken. So there's, there's, there's a whole interesting speculation about what Turing really meant, which we can never know since he died so quickly after. But at any rate, <coughs> in the Turing test, you, uh, you have a thought experiment in which there are a man and a woman in a soundproof booth, and all they can do is tweet at you, as we would put it today. They can send you these little messages you're asked to distinguish which is the man and which is the woman. Um, then we get rid of the woman. Off she goes. And we replace her with a computer. Now you have the computer tweeting at you and you have a man tweeting at you. You're asked, can you tell which is which? And the conclusion of the thought experiment is approximately, you know, if you can't tell which is tweeting at you, then perhaps you should consider the computer to be a person because to do otherwise would be to be like the Nazis, who I helped to defeat, speaking as Turing. It's an absolutely extraordinary idea. Um, it was the source point for a notion of human-machine equivalence that has taken on many different guises since. And the actual Turing test argument is probably not the most common one these days and hasn't been for quite a long time. But. It turns out that this notion of person-machine equivalence resonates with a certain style of cognition profoundly. And here I'm going to get into somewhat dangerous territory, and I can only say I, I think I'm speaking as honestly as I can, and I don't mean to insult anyone. I, I don't know what else to say. Um, there's a certain sort of cognitive style which is sometimes identified with um, the mild side of the um, Asperger's syndrome spectrum. Uh, in which, uh, and which has a sort of the nerdy, geeky quality, which occurs much more often in men than in women, in which somebody who's often technically inclined has a tendency to have difficulty understanding social situations or relating to them, or has a lot of social anxiety, uh, is awkward around sexuality issues, and tends to re retreat a little bit into a more abstract uh, sort of feeling about life. And Turing's idea practically define the basis of a religion for this sort of person. And that's exactly what happened. Essentially, um, what should properly be understood as a new religion has emerged in the nerd and geek world um, with, this, with this origin point in Turing's torture. Um, and it's sometimes known as the singularity. Sometimes it's known as posthumanism. And it has all the qualities of a traditional religion. You could go through it and just uh, change the terms and end up with a description of, say, the Catholic Church, more or less. Uh, so uh, this, is a, this is an idea that um, computers are, bec are becoming alive. And this is something that's not a point of view that's held by just 
a few weirdos, but it's at the very center of computer business and culture. Uh, Larry Page, one of the Google founders, talks about how Google is going to become alive any day now and so forth. Uh, there's um, an institution called the Singularity University next door to Google where Silicon Valley people go to get degrees in this, well, they don't actually issue degrees, but they go to study this stuff. So it's sort of a, like a theology institution. Um, and, and so this is, this is extremely prominent. And um, the notion is that uh, because of Moore's Law, which is uh, the uh, phenomenon of computers getting faster and cheaper and, and better all the time, which is, which is real, uh, that eventually the computers will get faster and better and more capacious than people, will become therefore smarter than people. The global computers will connect together, take over the planet, and they'll have such capacity within themselves that they'll be able to scoop up all our brains and will we'll, we'll gain eternal life within the computer. Um, now, I, to me, this is just pure lunacy, and I'll go over why. Um, uh, I mean, just very briefly, I can... <laughs> Why is it, for, for anybody who believes in it, I'll, I'll just give the very briefest rebuttal to it. One, software sucks. Uh, we don't actually know how to write software yet. It's this constant torture. Uh, while the hardware gets better, the hardware only gets better because its task is so well-defined. It's within this little box that's, persign, um, that's uh, uh, circumscribed by precise logic. So we have a learning curve where we can get better and better at making what's inside that box efficient. But software is the stuff that has to grapple with reality, and it gets more and more tangled, more and more difficult. A great example of that is that Apple, which has a huge and very effective and disciplined uh, software team, took two years to come up with copy and paste on the iPhone, right? And that's just because it's really hard to do software well. Uh, it's just even the really be the best teams can end up screwing up. And uh, for some, so somebody might say, well, cut, copy, paste on an iPhone is really just a user interface thing. It's not the real software. And I would say, well, you know what? I don't think there is anything to software except the user interface. I don't think software exists otherwise. And this might sound odd at first, so I want to try to make this clear. Um, if you pick up a computer and you bash somebody's head with it, they will get a bump. So in that sense, computers are as real as rocks. Whatever your standard for reality for a rock is also applies to a computer. However, the software in the computer can only be interpreted as being there by somebody who has the cultural context to interpret it. Otherwise, it simply doesn't exist. To a Martian, uh, a Macintosh is a, a head-bashing device. And uh, once in a while, when I, I, I have a tendency to want to use one in that way myself. Uh, but the, uh, but that, so, so software is, is a subjective thing. And that, that can become a long argument. And I go into it, it, it with more rigor in the book if you're interested. Um, my summary of it is that, so, that uh, um, Information as there's there's two unfortunately part of the there's there's an element of deception that's involved in the ideology which is that the word information has been used two different ways. There's a technical use of the term information which was uh, coined by Claude Shannon which relates information to entropy and it's a fundamental physical property that's entirely objective and can be defined precisely. But information that can be interpreted from a computer is really something different, and I define that kind of information, cultural information, as alienated experience, which means, or you can think of it as potential experience. It's a little bit like you, uh, you, you, you uh, lift something up from the ground and you put it on a ledge, and then if you prod it, it can fall off, which reveals potential uh, energy that was stored when you lifted it up in the first place. And in the same way, you have an experiential connection with bits that you put in the computer, which can be released when somebody has, <coughs> has the, the ability to interpret them. But barring that, they don't exist. So it's a, it's a, it's a, sub, it's a subjective form of potential 
Um, and it gets, it gets and, and in a sense, in a weird way, it's proof that subjectivity exists, which is, which is something that's denied by computationalists. But I'll, I'll get to that whole thicket maybe in a little bit. Um, I see some of you smiling, so you get what I'm talking about. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, uh, uh, this religion, um, if it were just a belief system that were held inside people's heads, would be just a belief system. And I, I uh, have no grievance against people believing what they will. I think it's unreasonable to expect us all to be perfectly rational, because rationality um, doesn't form uh, a complete and perfect whole and uh, hasn't always served us perfectly anyway. And so I believe, believe all sorts of things. I think it's healthy. But the, the problem with this is that uh, very much as with um, if a person who is a member of a traditional religion believes that some sort of supernatural global event is going to happen within their lifetime, like in 10 years or 20 years, it can make them really nutty. So somebody who believes that a Christian rapture is happening in 10 years might really change the way they approach the world and might make them behave in a way that's cruel to others. Um, and that's the problem we have with the uh, singularity people. Um, they believe that sometime in the 2020s, perhaps, this event will take place. and they're actually acting so as to further it. And uh, it is the case that these ideas have an influence on designs like Google Wave, which is why they have the features that I mentioned. So um, if you believe that computers are becoming smarter than people and are gradually going to evolve to take over the world and give us eternal life or something like that, um, one of your first tasks is to design software that makes it so. And sadly, human nature makes this easy for you to do. And the reason why is that people are socialized creatures and therefore we're willing, if we're told that uh, if Turing or somebody else tells us that maybe this thing is smart, we're ready to bend over backwards to make ourselves into idiots to make it seem smart. So, and that's why there's such a danger. So let me give you a couple of examples to give you a sense of how this works. I'll start with something small. Uh, let, uh, some of you have probably used Microsoft Word, and you might be familiar with this moment when you're typing along and suddenly it decides, oh, you must want an outline. And bam, there's an outline there. Have you ever come across that? And so now you're in this position, well, maybe I don't want an outline, and you have to undo it. And sometimes it can get a little annoying. So what happens is you start to learn how to avoid triggering this outline detection thing. <laughs> now, um, for the people who made it, who are friends, who I still work with and, and, uh, and see all the time, for the people who made it, they think, wow, this is great. The computer's getting smart. It's becoming your partner instead of just your tool. Um, it knows what you want. But of course, the truth is that you're just working extra hard to create the illusion that it knows what you want. You actually have to do more work into learning how to avoid the outline thing than just writing a damn outline, right? So you're bending over backwards and doing extra work to create this illusion. Now let's look at some more serious examples. Um, recently, uh, a great many folks in finance uh, thought that algorithms that could assess the risk in mortgages were smart and were actually doing what they claimed to do. And they bent over backwards to make absolute fools of themselves and paupers of many of us uh, to create this illusion. And this also shows an interesting thing that, uh, an interesting principle, which is that whenever you believe a computer is smart, you're allowing it to take on some of the responsibility that really should belong to an individual human and inevitability, inevitably, shortly thereafter, there will be some failure due to nobody having taken responsibility since the computer actually cannot. And that, in my mind, is a, the best summary of what just happened in this, uh, 
this uh, cloud-driven recession that we're still climbing out of. Um, the details, of course, are interesting, and I might get into them a little bit. Now, uh, many, many other examples of this. Um, in many uh, education, primary education systems around the world, in the United States right now, and I think in Europe too, there's an increased uh, reliance on on uh, computer-based assessment of testing scores in order to give feedback to teachers and schools. Uh, when you teach to the test, you remove a degree of volition and responsibility from the teacher, and you, you sort of mechanize the process of education, once again, in the service of making the algorithm seem smart. So yet another example. So the thing is, since we're on a hair trigger to make ourselves into morons to make computers smart, um, presenting us with software that asks us to do that is a very dangerous affair. And it's always a fallacy. Or to put it another way, there's no example of artificial intelligence that doesn't have a critical ambiguity in which it might just be an example of exaggerated human stupidity. There's no empirical method of distinguishing the two things. Um, there's, there's no absolute way to say that computers aren't smart. I mean, if somebody can't, uh, in fact, uh, a great example of this is that there's some people who think the singularity has already happened and that the computers have become smart. Um, I know at least two people who believe that. Kevin Kelly kind of believes that, and George Dyson kind of believes it. And um, uh, both of whom are great friends and, you know, cool people. Uh, and um, uh, but so, so, I mean, it is entirely subjective. You can believe it's happened, and if in 20 years somebody believes it, there will be no absolute way to dispute it because it's entirely a subjective phenomenon. But it always involves the, the equal possibility that you've really made yourself into an ass. Now, uh, <laughs> Um, is it okay to say that in Britain? I, I, I yeah, found that some, some of the words have like different... Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, there was a certain bit of scatology in an earlier talk that I was told really didn't play... You played a little bit more harshly here than you did in the States. Um, so <laughs> anyway, uh, um, so, so, so there's this tremendous danger. And uh, th this brings up another reason why the, why the open culture movement has, in my view, uh, failed. Uh, there's been um, a merger between this sort of uh, nerdy, wonky, geeky tendency to, to like the idea of human-machine equivalence for various emotional reasons. There's an there's alliance between that and uh, two other trends that, that sort of collided uh, approximately in the 70s and 80s and have been intertwined ever since, but really became uh, particularly stuck in an embrace right after the turn of the century. So one of the other ones was uh, a sort of a, uh, um, I think, a, a, what I would call a, a, um, a forgetful version of neo-Marxism. In other words, um, a kind of neo-Marxism that forgot the important lessons of Marx and, and was sort of a cheapened version, and it was a, a sort of an, a, a simplistic everybody should be equal kind of a thing that came up in some hippie circles. Uh, I remember in the 70s being with Ted Nelson, who I mentioned before, where he would be talking about this thing called the net someday, and um, he was proposing that money be involved so that people could sell each other their dreams in the long term, so that you could have a notion of creating your own life intellectually and out of your art, even if machines became very, very good and that you weren't uh, uh, having to work to survive, essentially. Some sort of form of uh, self-invention that would last after the necessity of, of struggle because technology had gotten so good, which could happen. I mean, technology could get very good and this could come about. And these um, <clears throat> people who identified themselves as Maoists would shout him down saying, no money in the digital universe and we're watching you and they'd wave red flags sometimes and they, they wouldn't let him talk. And um, 
that, so there's that sort of weird sort of lefty thing which morphed into uh, libertarianism in Silicon Valley. And that's one part of it. And then another thing that happened is um, Google did something which I, I hope that they will undo, which is they put advertising at the core of the internet. Um, and the advertising business model has turned into one of the most effective business plans of all time. It's the equivalent of, of having your own oil field or something, except you, uh, instead you just own the central position in an advertising referral network. And I'll get into why if I have time, but I, I think it's a tremendous um, mistake for the future of mankind. But anyway, so the advertising thing provided the business plan for it. Um, the, um, the sort of vaguely lefty thing that morphed into extre extremist libertarianism <coughs> provided um, a kind of uh, economic framework for it, and the um, the uh, the new religion of the singularity provided the emotional framework, and all of these things merged together to promote an ideology that loves certain designs um, that I actually had some enthusiasm for earlier. They're not necessarily always bad or always failures, and I'm not suggesting they should be removed from the earth entirely or anything like that. But they have, as a whole, sent us down a path that um, I think can be best described as anti-human. And I'll give you some examples of uh, where the current failure points are. Um, one issue um, can be seen in something like the Wikipedia. So I want to say I use the Wikipedia sometime. I don't think it's evil. I don't suggest that you um, ignore it forever. I do suggest that you try to ignore it for a while to see what happens. If you decide not to use the Wikipedia for a few weeks, I think you'll discover that the internet is a much richer place and more valuable to you than you ever imagined. Um, I do think if the Wikipedia just disappeared, a great many of us would find more value out there than we currently do. Now, um, here, I go into some detail into where I think the Wikipedia succeeds and fails in the book. I think it does succeed on some levels. I think it's a fabulous pop culture concordance. It was never before possible to <coughs> just look up weird little pop culture references and get an answer. And so there are, it, has, it has succeeded at that. I think it's also succeeded for some scientific communities as a, as a place to store uh, objective information of various kinds, although it doesn't do that uniquely, but it has succeeded at that. Um, where it fails and in anything to do with, in, with uh, telling the story of individuals or anything about the humanities, history, uh, uh, in that case, the very idea that there is a single point of view that's global is simply false. There isn't one. And the reason the Wikipedia exists is because, well, I mean, it's a little complicated. Um, of the people who founded it, one of them's more of an ideologue than the other. Uh, I, I talk with Larry Sanger all the time about trying to find who's one of the founders, and he's, he's very, he agrees with me and is looking for an solution. And the other guy, Jimmy Wales, pretty much uh, is a believer. And the problem, it, it becomes a self-reinforcing world because you're inside it and you, uh, uh, it makes sense because it presents this little alternate universe in which it itself, by definition, is, is right. Um, the other, encycl other encyclopedias um, identi identified themselves as a particular encyclopedia. The Britannica didn't call itself the only encyclopedia ever for all time. This is reality. It said this is the Encyclopedia Britannica, a particular one. And it did have a voice. It attempted to be authoritative, but it also attempted to have a voice unashamedly. And that was honest. Um, it might have annoyed people, it might have felt imperialistic or something, but it didn't pretend to be uh, the voice of God. Um, when you pretend to be the voice of God, you write a holy book. And the way you write a holy book is you mush up a bunch of people so that you obscure the original authors. All holy books have that origin, and that's precisely the method that's used in the Wikipedia. 
So in a sense, the Wikipedia is very similar to the Bible um, and has both the same strengths and weaknesses in some cases, although not, not as much of the same strengths because it's got, it's got too much mundanity in it. But I don't know. We could, we could argue about comparing them, but the dangers are similar. Um, that, um, when, that basically you're, you're inventing a supernatural source by erasing the human authors and you're creating a, a sense of superhuman validity and that is genuinely dangerous. There's no one book. There's no one true book. Uh, that's, that's a bad idea. There's o the only thing that exists are books with points of view. Anytime you, you pretend there's not a point of view, uh, you open yourself up to confusion and abuse. And uh, now, um, let me, let me um, concentrate on the point of abuse. Um, there's a problem in human nature, which is shared with a great many other creatures, which is that um, we evolved to be bimodal creatures. We can either function as individuals or as members of packs. Um, and there are many other creatures that evolved in the same way. So deep inside each of us is a little switch, and it says, are you functioning as an individual or are you functioning as a member of a mob? The existence of that switch has been demonstrated repeatedly in history because human history <coughs> is more or less um, the story of outbreaks of the switch being turned. Um, we could talk about the rise of various fascist cults, crazy religious people. Um, we see it again and again. It's, uh, there's no, no one is immune to it. Now, when we create software that erases the boundaries between people and suppresses human identity and authorship and responsibility, which these designs do, we're playing with fire because what we're doing is we're turning that switch. And we see the evidence of it repeatedly. Uh, the process of creating a Wikipedia entry is called uh, a war because it's often nasty. But even worse are situations in which people have less invested and, and have sort of drive-by anonymity, uh, such as in comments under YouTube videos or blogs, where there's just, I, I felt it myself, this incredible pull to become an idiot and get drawn into pointless confrontations with people and so forth. And there's a very distinct sequence that is recognizable when the switches turn. People form themselves into a pack. They're two uh, there, there are two confirmations that the switch has been turned. One is that you define an internal enemy, and that's the person at the bottom of your own totem pole, the person who will be uh, tormented within the group. And this is a particular problem, not so much for adult users of Facebook, but for, for teenagers, young people on Facebook, where they have to constantly worry about being in that position. And so there's this frenetic attention to avoiding the evil eye. And then the other thing is the um, identification of the external enemy, which is the opposing group. And then you form into these bubbles and you don't talk across the divide at all. Uh, and that's uh, happened very strongly in the United States now where the internet has become a medium of lack of communication precisely because it's too open. And this is where some sophistication and understanding the concept of openness has to, has to come about. So um, the United States is practically turning into two countries that don't talk to each other that are sort of interwoven and just fight and refuse to cooperate. Uh, the, which we call the red and the blue. And, and uh, what's remarkable is the, 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 the lack of dialogue and the internal dialogues in each happen largely within the internet. Um, and you can think of it as a uh, retrograde uh, recreation of the Civil War divide to a degree and various other things, but, it's, but the, the device of it is the internet. Um, and uh, it has to be said that the right wing uh, is more internet connected than the left wing because it's uh, meaner, and that's the correlation <coughs> at the moment, could change. Anybody can get mean online. Um, 
But what I've observed, for instance, in looking at jihadi groups and the way people become drawn more and more into a jihadi group is so similar to the way people become idiots when they're talking about guitars or poodles or something online. The, the, the topic is different, but the way that people are drawn into this sort of, uh, this weird uh, mob behavior is remarkably similar. The timing and the pattern are discernible, independent of the topic. So we have a problem, we're playing with fire. We're playing with an element of the human spirit that should be treated with vastly more respect. Um, I've also noticed in the uh, in Google Wave, uh, not all uses, but a lot of Google Wave sessions end up being sort of about ridicule of something, making fun of something, where the, the group of people make fun of a movie or something. It's a very common sort of wave that you see. Um, so this is, a, this is something we should take very seriously. Uh, phenomena on the internet can spread with incredible rapidity. So for instance, you see uh, something like Twitter become a commonplace within a year. It involves uh, hundreds of millions of people. Um, if uh, I'm concerned that we could have in sort of internet internet enabled very rapid outbreaks of very bad behavior, uh, so so these dehumanizing designs are in my view dangerous. Um, I would like to be wrong about this. Um, nothing would make me happier than for somebody to call me in 20 years and say, "Ha ha ha, you were worried for nothing." I would I'll be happily refuted in that manner. Um, uh, then um <coughs> how's my time? By the way, I don't, I don't have any sense of it. I'm. Oh, there's a clock. It'd be quite good to go to Q&A before the end, but I don't know, about another five minutes, I wouldn't want to stop the flow either. Yeah, so no, that's fine. I mean, the problem is there's a lot of material here, and fortunately there is this book, so whatever I leave out, you can, <laughs> um, uh, you, you can simply buy a copy of the book. Um, so uh, then, then we come to the economic issue. Um, so one of the ideas that we were most fond of is that uh, we should return, uh, we should reject capitalism and return to volunteerism for intellectual and uh, pursuits, matters of the heart and matters of art and expression. Um, the, the origin point here was very much part of the confluence of events I mentioned, the sort of neo-Marxist stuff, the kids stuff. Um, and in the book I tell some of the stories of the origin point and um, I was very much a part of it uh, and the uh, I tell a story there about an uh, argument I had uh, almost 30 years ago with a guy named Richard Stallman who founded the Open Software Movement, which was uh, the prototype for the Open Culture Movement. And he wanted to have collectively vol um, and volunteer-based creation of software, which has become a big deal with Linux and all. And there are a lot of people who are in that world and feel very strongly about it. And my first reaction to him at the time was one that I still actually I have come back to. I sort of came to agree with him for a while, and now I think that my first reaction was a first thought, best thought sort of thing. I said, you know, what if it's the case that people don't have the capacity to be radical in every way at once, but that you have to sort of choose what kind of radicalization you're going to focus on in order to get anywhere? And, and if um, doing things collectively means making really boring software, is it worth it? Because his first thought was, he just he just he worked very hard on a piece of really radical, interesting software that was lost because the company that owned the stuff uh, went out of business and um, was upset about it. And so the notion was, if it's collective, then we don't have that problem. It's just out there. It's part of the commons. But in order to do that, uh, to reasonably, you know, like he was a particularly brilliant person who could do all sorts of radical stuff. But to get everybody involved in something, you have to choose something less ambitious. So the idea was to make a collective version of Unix of all things. And I'm saying. It's the most boring project imaginable. Who cares if we make it collectively or if it's from some company? It's boring, for God's sakes. So, I mean, my first lecture as a kid, uh, 
about computer science when I was four, I was in school early. So I was, at 14, I gave a lecture that Unix was this incredibly boring sort of pseudo-useful thing that was worth another year. And here, there's, it's the center of everything all these decades later. It's just insane. Um, so, you know, if I had said to people 30 years ago, someday in 30 years, the computers will be literally millions of times faster and the great prize for humanity will be a new Unix release and an encyclopedia, a whole new one. And they would have said, well, screw that. You know, like what's, <laughs> why, who would care? Like that, that would be as exciting as saying there would be a new phone book or something, which is Google more or less, you know. I mean, there's this, like, there's this sense, there, there's this profound reduction in ambition and this profound reduction in the spirit of beauty and inquiry in computer science because of this ideology that if you make it by a collective, there must be something about it that's intrinsically so much better that it doesn't matter if the result is highly derivative and uninteresting. But that is the case. And, and the reason for that is going back to the, uh, the design by committee stuff. Uh, so all of the innovative stuff, the, the iPhones of the world and stuff, do not come that way. Even, um, it should be pointed out, even uh, the uh, Google, all of Google's products are named after artificial intelligence creatures from science fiction because they do hope that they'll come alive. So the, the Nexus is from one, one story and the Droid is obviously reference to Android. Um, but at any rate, you know, the Nexus one didn't, you know, there's this shop of people who were paid and worked in secret for a long time to make it um, and because they, ha they had encapsulation. They did a lot of testing. So they, they benefited in a way that, that a, a truly open um, system couldn't. Punctuated equilibrium, right? Punctuated encapsulation. Anyway, um, uh, so, uh, so you have this sort of dullness. So this is another problem. Um, and it's a matter of taste, and maybe we can have Unix for the next thousand years, and I shouldn't be upset about it, but for anybody who really studies computer science and gets it, it's a field of such potential beauty and, and exploration, and I think there's such treasures in there that we've just lost the curiosity for because of the acceptance of astonishing degrees of mundanity and dullness because of the stupid ideology. It just really pisses me off. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's another problem. And finally, there's this business of, of people getting paid. So um, uh, one of my other friends from the early days of the movement, uh, John Barlow, used to write about how you know all these figures in history didn't have to be paid in order to do what they do. Um, but you know, you look at their lives, they're pretty miserable. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, they, there were a lot of great classical poets and whatnot who, who lived by um, their wits in one way or another, but um, the, the, the reason that intellectual property came about um, is complex and checkered, and there's a great deal that's wrong with the system. I mean, commercial music was born largely as a money laundering scheme for organized crime as a historical fact, and so we're not talking about something that's universally clean and admirable. Um, and yet, and yet, it was also born in part because of labor movements that were looking for a very special thing which is called dignity. And so let's talk about what dignity is. Um, there's a phenomenon that I call uh, youthiness in the book after, oh, you guys might not even know about that. We have a famous sort of comedic newsman in, the, New York, in uh, the U.S. called uh, Stephen Colbert who has a term called truthiness, which is the sort of corporate fake truth that's put out a lot. So it's a, and, and so I made up a term called youthiness. Wow, you wouldn't even get that here. It hadn't occurred to me. Um, and so what youthiness is, is people who are my age, like in their 40s or 50s, who uh, talk about how in this new utopia we're creating for musicians, um, uh, sure you can't make your money from uh, selling your music anymore, but you can promote your touring. So you can go out and tour shows every night to make a living indefinitely, and you can keep on doing it, and won't that be wonderful? And the problem with that 
is that if you have to sing for your supper for every meal, you haven't earned this thing called dignity. Dignity means um, biological realism. And um, this is a theme I go into in the book quite a lot. Biological realism means accepting that what it is to be human is that you are not an abstract information system. To be human means you're sexual, it means you'll be ill sometimes, it means that uh, our children are extremely hard to raise because we have a quality called neoteny, which just basically means that being a parent is hell, and that all children are always disappointed because they can never get enough parenting, and that's just a biological fact. It means we die. It means that there's uh, fundamental unpredictability. And uh, uh, in, in the book I argue that the structure of a, of a well-functioning democracy is essentially compensatory for human nature. Uh, if human nature were ideal, then anarchy would work. And every structure that subtracts from or adds to pure anarchy is essentially compensatory for something about human nature. Um, but in a similar way, dignity is compensatory for human nature. It means uh, real time is the opposite of dignity. Uh, what you should be able to do is get to the point in your career where if you do need to raise a child and you need to stay up all night for years sometimes, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's bad. You know, once you've had a child and you realize what you put your parents through, it's, it's such a shocking revelation. It's one of the most surprising things that one can come across, I think, in life. Um, and I have a three-year-old now. Uh, and um, amazingly, it's easier to, you know, be traveling internationally than to be, you know, dealing with... Uh, it's just, it's an incredible thing. If you haven't done it, it's, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's really something. So that's neoteny. But, so dignity means you don't have to sing for your supper for every me meal. It means that there's some kind of a buffer where if you're sick for a while, if your spouse is ill, if you get old, you can still live well. And if you're creative, there's only one mechanism for that. Well, there's two. One is some sort of socialism where it's the same for everybody and you don't have to worry. And in the, as I say in the book, I'm open-minded about that. Maybe that can be made better, but the problem is that every example of it has been stultifying so far and, and has and ended up destroying the eccentrics. And since I'm pretty weird, I worry about it. Um, and the only other alternative is intellectual property. So you can still earn something from your music or whatever, even when you're offline. And I don't see a way around that. I mean, it's a pretty tight system of possibilities there. So we're kind of, you know, dignity, unfortunately, gravitates away from the open culture movement. Now, um, there's another crucial uh, extension here that I have to get to, which is if it were only the current victim classes who are the recording musicians, the illustrators, the, the uh, investigative journalists and the like who are uh, being disenfranchised by the, the way the internet is progressing, if it were only them, <coughs> we could say, We'll just invent institutions that compensate. We'll come up with some, some institution that supports journalists, and that's what's happening now. There are, there, there's a, a move to make journalism a publicly supported thing instead of something supported by newspapers, since the newspapers are gonna be killed pretty soon. Um, and uh, we could do the same thing for musicians, and that's okay. And indeed, if I thought it would stop there, then I would say, sure, let's go for that. The problem is that they function really as the canaries and the coal miners, the early warning signals for a process that won't stop and will consume every form of livelihood. And the reason for that is that as technology progresses, uh, more and more of the physical things that one might do become better done by machines. So right now, let me, uh, and so this is a principle that's a little subtle and I perhaps need to learn to articulate it more easily, but I think I can get it across. Um, Right now, one of, the, one of the pieces of advice given to musicians who can no longer make money from selling their recordings is, well, give away your music, but sell the t-shirt, okay? Now, what's wrong with that? One thing that's wrong with it is that 
surely within 10 years and absolutely within 20 years, there'll be very cheap little home robots that can replicate themselves, that will be able to, uh, and there are any hobbyist machines like this, that can um, make a custom t-shirt design or some other clothing off a design on the internet. And then the custom aspect of that t-shirt or any other clothing will be exactly as valuable as the music you rip to burn on a CD, which is zero. So as the robots get better, more and more of these more physical things start to go away. And uh, I, the I use the term digital Maoism um, carefully because I, I, I really don't like red baiting, but I think it's just so precisely accurate in this case that I have to use it. So one of the features of Maoism as opposed to a lot of other uh, streams of Marxist thought is that you hate the intellectuals. You find somebody, somebody's been making th their money off their brain or their heart and you say, no, 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 you should be out there toiling in the fields. You should, you know, it's unfair. And that's exactly what we're doing. What we're telling people is, no, you don't make money from your music. Uh, do the t-shirts. So it's something more physical. You don't make, you, you should tour, something more physical. But the problem is that the more physical a job is, the, the more likely it is that it eventually be taken over by a robot. Which was, you know, and so, the, the, see, the whole point of technological progress um, is that uh, while a particular improved technology can put some people out of work because they were trained for the old technology, and that's what happened with the Luddites in the 19th century and John Henry and the railroad and all these other mythical creatures. New, better jobs should come about as a result where you can program the robot, let's say. So the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of the Luddites who were concerned about improving looms might be programming mechanical looms now, or digital looms. And <clears throat> if you do if you turn away from that and if you say no no actually we don't want you to be paid for what you do with your brain so the programming of the robots should be done for free that should be part of this open thing but you still demand that people pay for rent and food if you only demonetize the activities of the heart and the brain but you you still monetize the world of the body you'll impoverish people more rapidly than they can benefit from improvements in technology and you'll create a pauper society and this is <laughs> i gotta tell you the fundamental argument for this is not theoretical but empirical. Um, the open culture movement spews out enormous volumes of propaganda that create this illusion that is still being propagated. I mean, there's a BBC special going on right now that's still propagating this illusion that there must be hundreds of thousands of people out there who are musicians who are suddenly coming into tremendous wealth by giving away their music and all of the the opportunities they get as a result of that free promotion are so tremendous that their lives are vastly improved. Um, and then if you actually look for these people, they don't exist. Empirically, it's not working. And you have to be honest about this. And it was that result that really turned me around. And I realized the theory sounded beautiful, but it just doesn't work. And uh, um, it will not stop with musicians and journalists. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I realize I'm, I'm running out of time here. There's much, much more to say about this. But I hope I've given you a bit of a flavor of some of the concerns. Um, I think fundamentally the book is about spirituality because what I propose is that the only way to write decent software that is decent for people, that creates a decent life for people, that brings out excellence in people, is to be as optimistic as possible about what a person is, extending to the point that we should assume some supernatural specialness to people. In other words, that people are not machines. I don't know for a fact whether that's true or not, but I know that if you assume that people are machines, you write um, oh, I, I used the wrong word the other day. You write um, poor software. 
software that might be described with a scatological reference if, we're, if one were in the States. And so for that very pragmatic reason, we should assume that we're supernaturally better than computers and that that's the only way to be good computer scientists, good engineers, or good business people in, in the world of the digital devices. So you are not gadgets, neither am I. Oh, thank you. We, uh, we do have time for some questions from the floor. There are a few people with mics. If you want to put your hands up and we'll try and get microphones to you as quickly as possible. So, uh, do you want to take the gentleman right next to you? Do we do two or three at a time? And then yeah, do it as you, as you please. If do there. Uh, gentleman at the front down here. You spoke a little bit about um, the environmental problems with um, as two reasons for why we should consider uh, or reconsider the way the internet is structured. I was wondering how you see the relationship between technology and climate change, both in mitigation and adaptation to mm -hmm. um, environmental problems. Great. Uh, take the next one. So, so I'm very involved with application security, and um, and I'm on the camp that really believes the whole this whole mess. And my question to you is. Is application security, and when we realize that we can't write secure software, we can't write systems that we barely understand, might as, might as well secure, is that going to actually make us take much more control of technology? In some ways, answer a lot of your, your worries that the fact that when we realize that we're creating these massive monsters that nobody can really understand and control, we're actually going to simplify a lot of technology and make it much more almost, you know, like, I like your analogy of building those little walls and scaling out mm -hmm. in a much more controlled way. Okay. Okay, let's take one more. Um, front, please. Uh, something I've been thinking about is that, uh, do you think, because of the openness of the internet, do you think it makes companies and people better, or are we just better at kind of uh, hiding what we do normally? Because now companies are all open and, and never dump horrible things anymore. Do you think it changes people and companies, how they behave because of the openness of the internet? Okay. Shall I answer those three? Yep. Okay. Um, this is, you know, it's funny, this is not what we do in the States, and I find it a bit of a memory exercise because I get interested in the most recent question I have to. So there's one about climate change. So <clears throat> let me first say um, the wrong response to climate change is to become anti technology. Um, from the moment we started to talk and make fire, we entered on a path as a species in which every technological advance also brings challenges, and we're constantly having to solve problems of our own creation, and somehow that is our path, that's our nature, that's who we are. Uh, to reject that is to reject the human adventure. And there's no doubt in my mind that we will survive the climate change problem. It will involve more technology, and there will be side effects to that technology that will create new problems. This is an eternal aspect of our nature, because our nature is that the future, our future is different than our past. We are not a creature of stasis. We're inventing ourselves. It is beautiful. It is perilous. Uh, and the, the two qualities are inextricably the same and our beauty is our peril, that's who we are. That is what it is to be human. Um, there's no question that cloud computing will be part of the technological survival of climate change and other global ecological issues. It's, it's more complex than just that. We also have the question of where the fresh water will come from and all sorts of things. It's, it's a huge mess. Um, and 
the uh, cloud computing will provide the technical infrastructure so that we can have the data from sensors and perform the computations needed to find our solutions. I have no doubt that that will happen. So I'm very optimistic and I think the solution has to be a high tech one. There's no retreat because it's actually impossible. So I guess I, that's what I can say about it. So I, I want to be very clear that I'm, I'm, ac I'm a pro-techie. I, I, I'm a little concerned that sometimes I'm, I'm perceived or portrayed as having turned against technology or against the internet or something and nothing could be further from the truth at all. Um, and then the second question was something about the open culture movement and uh, so around application security and security. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so security. Um, <clears throat> when you have a world where on the one hand everything's open and on the other hand there are just a few walled gardens like Apple, Amazon and stuff, the, the problem with that world is a loss of variety. So um, in evolution there, the word biodiversity and the word security are equivalent. Biodiversity is what makes it possible for populations to survive an attack by a virus. What we lack in the digital world is biodiversity. If we had a universal payment system, then small groups could put up something for sale, whether it's software or whatever, without having to go through one of these bottlenecks. And in that world, we'd achieve biodiversity. Now, um, by the way, uh, one of the... Uh, and, and, and there's, of course, there's no such thing as perfect security. Um, <clears throat> one of the fallacies in the open culture movement comes from hacker culture, which is this idea that you should ridicule the notion of security through obscurity. But that is biodiversity. There's nothing else. There's no other form of security. And that's, that's the, but the, the, then there's yet another issue, which has to do with the social contract. Um, <clears throat> it, I, uh, I grew up in kind of a rough place in rural New Mexico, and I had some experiences of breaking into things and whatnot. And if you haven't ever done it, it's not all that hard to break into most houses or cars. Um, the reason not to do that is not that there's a technical impediment, because it's really, especially if you're smart enough to be in school, you're certainly smart enough to become a crook. I mean, it's not that hard. Most of them are idiots, and they still can do it. Um, the, the, the reason you don't do it is because you recognize that there's a social contract that's ultimately in your benefit. So when you walk out that door tonight, you don't just break into some car or apartment you see because you realize it's nice to live in a world where you don't expect that to be done to you. That, and that's another form of dignity, that having an expectation that you won't be violated is such a nice thing that you might decide not to violate others. Um, a golden rule sort of a, of a, of a calculation. We've denied people the opportunity to have that experience of the digital world. So um, the first time that you put up a blog comment, so somebody puts up a blog and you put up a little comment and people like your comment and as a result of it being read so much you earn 50 bucks or 50 quid or whatever. Or if you, uh, the first time you put up a YouTube video and you make uh, 20,000 pounds because it was popular that day, you'll be a believer. It has to be fully open and fully democratic so people have a chance to benefit from it and then suddenly there'll be a different attitude. So instead of, I demand everything for free, I should be able to get it for free, there should be no impediment. You'll say, hey, wait a second, I have a chance to do well by this thing. And that, that shift in social contract uh, is also fundamental to security. So biodiversity in all things natural and in things human, a, um, a golden rule-based social contract, those are the two things that give you security and nothing else really does. Uh, in the book, I call uh, locks and security means something like um, amulets of inconvenience to remind us of a decision that we really wanted to make but might forget once in a while. And that's all they can ever be. There's no technological ideal means to security unless you want to live in a really stultifying socialist predetermined state, which is not the world I want to create. And then yours 
the openness of the internet? Does it make companies and people better? I mean, mm. maybe even countries. Well, the thing about openness is that it's completely a deceit right now. It's completely phony. So people will say, oh, we're being so open, we don't have privacy anymore, isn't it wonderful? But meanwhile, we're not allowed to peer into the dark heart of the Google uh, PageRank algorithm. We're not allowed to peer into the dark heart of the, the um, hedge fund computer that steals money from all of us. Um, the owners of the servers are the ones who are basically what's happening is we, we're <coughs> instead of flattening as is advertised and is still described in this I just noticed this BBC uh, internet documentary which is many years out of date I'm sorry to say instead of flattening we're just creating a new hierarchy where the most meta representation of humankind in the most central server gets all the power um, and so we don't have real openness we have this fake kind of openness and so it you know, it's it's not based on reality. Real openness that's uh, symmetrical would be very interesting, but it hasn't been attempted. Um, I'm, you know, my own feeling about this question is um, that the symmetry is important. I can, I think, a world of extremely increased openness and extremely decreased um, privacy might actually be a good world, provided it's genuinely symmetrical in all directions. If it's if it just means that all of us pauper or all of us uh, peasants lose our privacy, but the, 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 um, the servers that, uh, that regiment us, are, are, we, we use open, open software, we write Linux code, let's say, but the code that actually determines what we can see because it, it directs advertisements and media to us, and the code that determines how much money we have because it's stealing from us in a regular manner and all this is hidden from us inside some dark server. In that asymmetrical world, I, 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 think, I think we see only a dark future. Okay, given the time, unfortunately, I'm going to uh, need to bring things to a close. Okay. I'd like to remind people, Jerome will be outside in a moment signing copies of his book, which I do recommend. It's a great discursive journey through a lot of very important topics on the themes you've heard today about how really we should be helping shape our digital age and not just letting, letting it happen to us. Uh, if we could show our appreciation again for Jerome. Uh, oh,